gospel according to Luke in chapter 15. we come to the parable of the lost son. Then he said, a certain man had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falls to me. So he divided to them his livelihood. And not many days after, the younger son gathered all together, journeyed to a far country, and there wasted his possessions with prodigal living. But when he had spent all, there arose a severe famine in that land, and he began to be in want. Then he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country, and he sent him into his fields to feed swine. And he would gladly have filled his stomach with the pods that the swine ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have bread enough and to spare, and I perish with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But when he was still a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight and am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring out the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand, and sandals on his feet, and bring the fatted calf here and kill it, and let us eat and be merry. For this my son was dead, and is alive again. He was lost and is found, and they began to be merry. May the Lord bless the reading from his word, and let's focus particularly on the opening part of verse 18, where the son resolves to rise up and go to my father, And then again in verse 20, at the beginning of the verse, he arose and he came to his father. The resolution made and the resolution kept. I will arise and go to my father. And he arose and came to his father. Now in the morning, following on from last Sabbath evening, we followed the path 
of this young man, the youngest son of his father, and we saw him falling from the status that he had as a covenant child in his father's home. In that respect, he had the same status exactly as his brother. But this brother chooses to leave, and his leaving eventually results in the utter degradation of verse 16, where we have this young man and he squandered his inheritance and we find him wishing that he could eat the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. Now, we saw how and why he found himself in that situation in the morning. And there's no doubt in the light of the parable itself and in the light of who the parable was spoken to, there's no doubt that this son represents the tax collectors and the sinners who were finding something for themselves in the good news that Jesus Christ preached. And that ought not to be overlooked. It's obvious that whatever church setup the Pharisees and the scribes were presiding over in many of the synagogues and in the centralized institution in Jerusalem, it's quite obvious that people felt that there was no word in it for them, that somehow the message that comes from the God of heaven is just not for them. And that is something that we always have to make clear to people and something that we have to show in our interaction with tax collectors and sinners. We have to show them that the message that God has is for them, that the gospel can help them, and that the gospel can indeed save them. Christ, of course, is receiving these people. Not only do they recognize that his heart is towards them, but they come towards him, and he eats and drinks with them. There's nothing that gladdens his heart so much as to see people far away hearing the gospel and receiving it. Now, these tax collectors and sinners are, of course, people who have turned their backs absolutely upon God in their lives. And it's, it's only fair to say that we could understand it. There's a sense in which it would be reasonable enough if, if the door of salvation was closed on those who had closed it as such themselves. Or to put it another way, if God shut the door on those who were shutting the door on himself. There's something very reasonable about that. And in fact, there is a, a very powerful sense in which that will one day be true. A, a day will come when the door will shut, and it will be shut on everyone who has not entered in by that time. That is true. But the fact of the matter of the matter is that, um, as these parables teach us, the door is open to us, and it'll stay open until it's, it's shut either by your death or by the final judgment. And uh, when God shuts that door, of course, no man can open it. When God opens a door, no man can shut it. When God shuts it, no man can open it. Now, the amazing thing about this man is that he actually turns around or he repents. You'll remember, as I've said quite often, that the word repent means to turn around. At least that's what it means in the Hebrew language. 
uh, in the Greek language, it means to change your mind. In the Hebrew language, it means to turn around. And uh, it's quite a marvelous thing, really, that when you put the Greek and the Hebrew together, you get an absolutely complete picture of what repentance is. It, It means that your mind is changed, and therefore you turn around and you walk in a different direction. It involves the inward and the outward. And the amazing thing is that this man actually turns around. Now, the reason that he turns around is ultimately because God is seeking him out and God turns him around. Uh, You'll remember from the morning that that is the reason we have three parables and not one. In the first two parables, the emphasis is on God seeking the lost. You'll remember that the shepherd looks for the sheep, puts the sheep on his shoulder and takes it home. In the second parable, the woman sweeps the house until she finds the coin and puts the coin back in her wedding headdress. This time, the emphasis is not on the father seeking. The emphasis is on the sinner turning. But let's be clear, the reason why the sinner turns is because the sinner is being looked for and because God is working in this sinner's heart. Now, we're actually told nothing about what God does to this person, but it's always assumed. It's in the background. The man comes to himself, yes, because God enables him to come to himself. The man gets up and goes back to his father because God enables him to get up and go back to his father. That's always to be understood. And surely it's the truth that every Christian Everyone born again by the power of God will say that whatever they did, and however conscious they were at the time of just doing it themselves, they will look back and say, God enabled me to do that. I did that because God spoke to me. I turned round because God sent a famine. I turned round because God made me remember what my father's house was like, and so on and so on. So let's recognize that. I'm going to speak a lot tonight about what the sinner thinks and what the sinner does, but let's give the glory where the glory needs to go. It will go to the God who is seeking and saving that which was lost. So let's not lose sight of that in this parable that focuses so much on the human mind, the human heart, and the human decision-making process, if you like. Now, um, This parable takes us inside the mind of the youngest son. It gives us an insight. In other words, a sight inside. It helps us to see what he thinks and what he feels. And the wonder is that he repents. So we've seen him fall from his status. We've seen what his status was as a son and how he fell from it. Let's now look at his rising again, a kind of resurrection or a repentance. And there are two parts of it, two parts to it. First of all, you'll notice in verse 17 that he came to himself. But when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's 
hired servants, never mind sons, but how many of my father's hired servants have bread enough and to spare, and I perish with hunger. He came to himself. That's an idiom. It's an idiomatic expression we use in English. Where I come from, my first language is Gaelic. We have exactly the same expression, anikeikein. The same thing is true in the Greek. Came to himself. The implication is that he's not himself or that he's somehow distant from himself, outside of himself, or as is often said in the language, beside himself. That man's beside himself. He's not himself. If you speak of a person who's not himself or a person who's beside himself, what, what you mean by that is a person who's lost his reason with emotion. In other words, he's reached the limit of emotion so much so that they've lost rational power. That person is beside himself with joy. He's out of himself. Or that person is beside himself with rage. It's often used for madness too. That man's beside himself. He's, he's not really in himself. He's not a sound mind and a sound body. He's somewhere else. You remember when Paul was preaching the gospel or uh, when he was actually giving his testimony before King Agrippa. Uh, King Agrippa was accompanied on that occasion by Festus, the Roman governor. And when Paul had finished explaining how the power of God had worked in his own heart and turned him from a proud, hard-hearted Pharisee into a Christian, Festus just couldn't help it, but he interrupted Paul and said, Paul, he said, you are beside yourself. You're beside yourself. And then he went on to say, you're beside yourself because much learning has made you mad. So you'll notice what being beside yourself meant for Festus. It meant just being mad. Now, what we need to do and what this man needed to do was to come to ourselves, to, to come to proper and rightful thinking about our father and about our father's house and about ourselves too in our relationship to our father's house and to ask ourselves, what on earth am I doing in the far country? What decision-making process took me from everything I had to what I've got now? And what do I expect in the future? Come to your right mind or think straight. So he came to himself. He had, as the Greek says, a change of mind, repentance. The Greek word is metanoia, it's to think afterwards, to rethink. Rethinks his decisions and his life. The first thing involved in coming to yourself is a realization. And there's a, a twofold part to the realization. First, there's a realization that he had been foolish. And the foolishness of his, of his life comes out in verse 17. When he came to himself, he said, or he thought, this is the first rational thing that he's thought for a long time, how many of my father's hired servants have bread enough and to spare, and I perish with hunger? All I ever really needed was to be found in my father's house. 
and I am not going to find it here. It's, it's a wonderful thing to reach the point in the world where you realize that the world hasn't got it. It's a delusion. It's, it's a fantasy. It's, it's an alluring web that Satan himself weaves for you to think that the world out there has got the answers for you. It's got the answers for you intellectually. It's, it's got what you need emotionally. He comes to realize that it doesn't. And that of course, is the grace of God. And what madness it is. I mean, you must be beside yourself. You must be beside yourself if, if you think that life could somehow be lived without your father and that, that it could be lived without the guidance and the love and the wisdom of the creator who made you. I mean, what kind of madness is it that possesses us which makes us think that life can be lived without our Father and our Creator. Of course, as the Greek poet said, those whom the devils wish to destroy, they first make mad. And before the devil destroys ourselves, he does make us mad with a rational process that is completely irrational. I mean, you have it beginning in the Garden of Eden itself. The devil, of course, persuaded Eve and he persuaded her by saying, has God said that you cannot eat of all the trees in the garden? Has God said that you cannot eat of all the trees of the garden? Now, very often, um, when people think of that temptation... They think that what Satan is doing is trying to get Eve to doubt God's word. Trying to doubt his veracity and his truthfulness. But that's not actually the point of attack. The point of attack is actually trying to get her to doubt his character. Whether he is really good. And once she begins to doubt his character and his goodness, it's an easy step then to conclude that he's a liar. Because in order to lie, you have to have the character of being a liar. And really what Satan is trying to say is this, Eve, understand. Understand the, the real reality of your situation. And that is that God is prohibiting something from you. The fact of the matter is, I mean, you can point to every tree in the garden and to every herb of the field. But yet I can point to you a tree in the middle of the garden which God says you can't have. And you can think God is good if you like. But the fact of the matter is that he has something that he doesn't want you to have. And what does that indicate at bottom? but somebody who isn't as good as he says he is. Somebody who fears you and who fears what you could be because you could be as gods, yourselves, knowing good and evil. Like me. I know something you don't know. God knows something you don't know, and it's God's fault that you don't know it. And all of a sudden, all that matters to Eve 
is what she can't have. All of a sudden, you ever felt that? I'm sure you have felt that, because that's the way Satan always works. The reality is, the reality is that nothing was forbidden to Eve and Adam. Nothing at all except that one symbol of God's loving authority, which they were to leave right there. That symbol which taught them that God knew what was good and right and true and holy, and God had the authority to declare what was good and right and true and holy. And it was their wisdom to recognize that and to enjoy the wealth that God had given them in creation. That was the reality. But Satan deceived them. Satan deceived them. And what is it to take of that fruit and eat it but madness? Madness? But he makes the madness believable, just like he still does. I mean, to make an enormous number of learned and gifted people believe that the whole universe is a product of random chance is an incredible act of deception. Incredible. Because what is it to believe it but madness? Madness. And yet, well, he weaves a web well. He deceives well. So for a moment, Eve is beside herself. And in seeking to be wise, she becomes the first fool on the earth. And Adam becomes the second. And there's no end of fool since. No end. Unless God has mercy on us. And here, this young man is effectively saying, what a clown I've been. An idiot I've been. I've left everything, really. Everything that actually mattered and everything that was of substance and reality and of goodness. And I'm in amongst the pigs with nothing. So coming to yourself involves the realization that you've been a fool. It's not easy to admit that, actually. It's quite easy to admit that you've you've got something wrong. It's quite easy uh, to admit that an opinion that you've held is wrong. It's not easy to admit that your whole worldview has been upside down. That every thought you've ever thought really has been wrong because God hasn't been in. It's not easy. But coming to himself involves a realization of more than just being a fool. It also involves a realization that he's a sinner. Because as well as recollecting his father's house, he resolves in verse 18 to rise up and go to his father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. And that's important because... Just realizing you're a fool won't make you go back to your father's house. It might just make you think differently about how to live in the far country. You might decide to join yourself to another citizen of the far country or just be a little better with your domestic economics. But to realize you've been a sinner as well as a fool, that's a different matter. And you'll notice how both these things come to the fore here. I have sinned against heaven 
and before you. The root of my foolishness is sin. Foolishness isn't the root of my sin. I don't, I don't sin because I'm foolish. I'm foolish because I sin. Our fundamental problem is sin, not stupidity. But he confesses this too. My life choices have been wrong. I have offended my God, and I have offended my Father. I mentioned in the morning that when he asked his father effectively uh, to convert a third of the estate into cash so that he could go away with it, he never thought about his father, never thought about his father's anguish and his father's grief and his father's disappointment, never gave it a thought. But these things come back to him our life and our choices of sinned. Uh, you need to come to that place too. Do, do you recognize not only that you've taken wrong turnings, but that these wrong turnings are against God, that you've transgressed his holy law, that you've walked out of your father's house, that you've just thumbed your nose against your father's love and kindness? The thing is that, as I said earlier, the only reason he's acknowledging this is because of the goodness of God. We keep, we keep in a way, having to go back behind the parable and to find the seeking shepherd and to find the Holy Spirit that's sweeping around the coin. He is the one who brings these thoughts to his head, absolutely, but he's the one who's thinking them. He's the one who's thinking them. And if God wasn't impressing his sin upon him, like I said, well, not only would he just try and live as best he could in the far country, he would pro he'd rather die of starvation. Because we're so full of our own beliefs and our own self-righteousness. So coming to himself, or, or you coming to yourself, involves a realization of your foolishness and your sin. And can you say that tonight? Can you just take a quick look back over your life to where you are just now? And okay, you might not be in this degradation. But nonetheless, can you take a look back over your life and say, I've been foolish. And I've been foolish because I've sinned. And I've sinned against my father, against light and against privilege. But coming to yourself needs more than a realization. It also needs a resolution or a resolve. In verse 18, he makes that resolution. He resolves I will arise and I will go to my father. I will arise and I will go to my father. And this, if you like, is the spiritual hinge on which the whole parable turns. And isn't it amazing that we somehow stumble at it? Oh, here's where the difficulty comes in. Yeah. What does this mean now? I will arise and go to my father. I can't do that. Doesn't the father have to draw me? Or um, how can I possibly get up in my own strength and in my own energy? And the devil, of course, will take his half-truth. And he'll say, now listen, doesn't matter what the preacher's telling you just now, you know deep down in your heart, I'm sure you've heard it, that you can't come of yourself. You must wait for God to do the work for you. 
You've heard that. And of course, it is the devil's half-truth. There's plenty of truth in it because it's right to affirm that it's God who makes you willing. Absolutely so. But it's wrong to say that you can't do it because you can do it if you're willing to do it. It's as simple as that. Of course you can do it if you're willing to do it. And the one who makes you willing to do it is the Lord. But you must work out what God works in. And this simple failure to make such a clear and obvious distinction between God's work and ours, and yet the connection between them as two sides of the same coin, is a reason why people stay paralyzed in their pews, paralyzed in their houses, and perpetually paralyzed in spiritual things. When Christ said to the man who had the withered or the paralyzed hand, when he told him to lift up his arm, he did not say to wait until he felt power. And when you feel power surging into your arm, then raise your arm. He did not say that. But simply do it. And if you want to raise your arm, raise it. And what does the man do? He stretches out his withered hand. Why? Because he wanted to stretch it out. And because he wanted to stretch it out, God enabled him to stretch it out. And yet, we demand that God empower us first, and then we will act. No. He acts Inside your act, he empowers your act. I've, I've used this illustration before, and it's, it's a very simple one in a way, but it just draws attention to the fact that God's sovereignty is over everything. I mean, let's say for a moment that, that you admit these things to be true. You admit the reality and the nature of a sovereign God, who is sovereign over the natural world as he is over the spiritual world. He is sovereign over the breath that we breathe as he is over our spiritual lives. We admit that. Now, of course, you are going to take your next breath. At least we assume so, because it's not, of course, guaranteed, and we should never forget that. But, but you know that your breath is in God's hand. Uh, Daniel, of course, said that to to, to uh, not Nebuchadnezzar, but Belshazzar, that, that his breath was in the hand of God. Now, you know that. I hope you know that to be true, that the next breath you breathe is because God gives it to you. Now, knowing that to be true, are you going to breathe the next breath? Or will you say, well, I, I won't breathe it until I know that God's enabling me to breathe it? Well, of course you don't say that. You breathe it. You breathe it. In other words, you don't wait for the power to breathe. All that you need is the desire. And the God who gives you the desire will also give you the power. Now it's like that. Do you want to go back to your father's house? Then get up and go. And you'll find in the getting up and going that you've been enabled to get up and go. 
You can't work it out beforehand. Oh, the devil would be quite happy for you to while away your time working all this out in a book or writing it on a piece of paper, even understanding the system of systematic theology perfectly. Oh, no, it's in the doing. It's in the doing. With repentance and returning to your father's house, if you desire to do it, then do it. In other words, what hinders you other than the devil and your own unbelief? Uh, you'll notice, by the way, that this young son doesn't think he deserves to get home. He says in verse 18, I will arise and I will go to my father. Now, what kind of reception is he expecting? Well, he says, what he's going to say, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. I understand that, he says. I understand that. I know it. Just make me like one of your hired servants. In other words, a place where I can have bread and security and peace. And knowing now what I know about the brutal world out there, I'll take that. I'll take that. Because there is love and security in your house, even as a hired servant. Now, if he didn't expect that, if he didn't hope in that, he, he wouldn't go back home. It's interesting that he doesn't take the position that he's burnt all his bridges with his father. I mean, there's a sense in which you would understand that, that he says, well, whatever I do, I can't go back home. Uh, by the way, I didn't intend to say this um, at all. It's just come into my head, but I think it's important because I was talking to somebody about it recently. Um, even if things are so bad that perhaps you even have to put your son or your daughter out of the house, never make them feel that they can't come back. Never make them feel that they can't come back. Um, Someone once said to me that um, the difference between a good parent and a bad parent can be summed up like this. If a son says to himself, I'm, I've done something terrible, my father will kill me. Or if the son says, I've done something terrible, I had better go to my father. But that is the difference between a good father and a poor father, always resolved to be the second one. Even if they know that you're as inflexible as inflexible can be in connection with certain commandments and rules and whatever, always let them know there's a way back. And obviously this man, by the grace of God, realizes there's a way back. The shorter catechism, when it deals with repentance, and repentance is a beautiful thing. Um, when it tells us uh, what a sinner thinks and feels in the process of repentance, it includes that the sinner has an apprehension of God's mercy in Christ. In other words, you, you, you apprehend it. Maybe you don't fully comprehend it, but you apprehend it, which means you touch it. Uh, you don't fully understand. Maybe you're not fully confident that, that God will somehow expect yourself, but, but you, get, you get enough to lay yourself out upon him. 
And you'll notice how the parable just goes nicely along with that, because it doesn't make this man arrogant. He, this man doesn't say, well, my father had better accept me back or anything of that kind. He knows that it's of the greatest mercy and condescension that his father will take him back home. So he'll just slot into being a hired servant, the lowest of the low, just to get back into his father's house. So there's a resolve to go back to God. Now, you can be sure, friends, that even if you feel in yourself that you've almost got a cheek to turn back to God after the life that you lived, he'll take you gladly on these terms. He'll take you gladly on these terms. And it doesn't matter how long it is since you walked out of your father's house, he will take you back. So along with a realization of foolishness and sin, there's a resolve to return. And that's what coming to himself involves. But you'll notice that repentance is more than coming to yourself. It's also coming to your father. So in verse 18, you have that resolution, I will arise and go to my father. But in verse 20, we're told that he arose and he came to his father. And he arose. He did it. What if he had stayed at the resolution? How many of you have made the resolve? I wonder if, if it's true of some of you in here that you have actually resolved that you're going to get up and go to your father. How many maybe who are joining with us online here today because they cannot come to the church? How many of you directly have resolved at some point to go back to your father, but you haven't actually done it? You realized you were foolish, you realized you were a sinner, and you knew you had to go back home and that there was no other place to go, but you still haven't done it. You're staying in the far country still, because in spite, in spite of all that, in spite of all that I've said and everything, you still feel that your future's in the far country. And the world is reluctant to let you go. The God of this world is reluctant to let you go, and he will... Keep putting things in front of you that are effectively saying, stay here. There's nothing for you back there. Stay here. Stay in the far country. And you've made such a resolution. There's a proverb which says that the road to hell is paved with good intentions. And absolutely, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. But it's also paved with good resolutions. Thousands of them that you've never actually fulfilled. And the thing that's wonderful about this man is not that he said, I'm going to get up and go home, but that he got up and went home. He did it. And what the gospel is saying to you tonight is not to realize that you're bad. It's not to realize that you need help and that only God can help you, but to go to God. What must I do to be saved? Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Take up your cross and follow me. That's what you need to do. Don't think about it anymore. Do it. Do it. You must do it, or you'll die one way or another in the far country. So he gets up, and he goes to the father. And last of all, there's a rejoicing here. Now, of course, 
the whole parable is full of joy. So is the parable of the lost sheep being found, and so is the parable of the lost coin being found. Rejoice with me, the shepherd says. I've found my sheep which was lost. Likewise, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 just ones who need no repentance. That's in their own assessment. They need no repentance. Again, when the woman finds her coin, she calls her friends and neighbors and says, Rejoice with me, for I have found the peace I lost. Likewise, he says, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And when this son comes home, there is joy too. And that joy comes to the fore. And you'll notice that the joy is especially in the father himself. The joy is in the father. This is Christ's way of saying to the Pharisees that are listening to the parable, you might be grumbling at me receiving sinners and eating with them, but my father in heaven isn't grumbling. There is joy in the heart of God. It's one of the wonderful thoughts that Scripture brings before is that God rejoices. Sometimes people can get lost in that kind of thought and in that kind of concept because of uh, things that are true of God, his immutability and so on. <clears throat> but you mustn't empty the text of what it is communicating to us. That God rejoices. Uh, we rejoice in him, but he rejoices in us too. It's hard for me to believe that, to be honest. I believe it by faith that he rejoices in me and that he rejoices in you. Zephaniah 3.17 is one of the most uh, beautiful texts in Scripture. The Lord your God in your midst who will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quieten you with his love and he will rejoice over you with singing. Let me read it again. Is it not worth reading and hearing again? The Lord your God in your midst will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quieten you with his love and he will rejoice over you with singing. So much for the idea of Jesus being full of love, but God the Father being hard and stern and inflexible. Like the man in the other parable said, I knew that you are a hard man, reaping where you never sowed in the first place, gathering where you never even scattered. I knew you, a hard man. Is this a hard man here? Look at him in verse 20. When the son gets up and comes to the father, when he is still a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck. And kissed him. Every part is precious, is it not? He sees him a great way off. Notice that someone didn't tell him that the sun was coming. A great way off, obviously, here means in the distance. He's not told that the sun is coming, he sees it for himself. What we're meant to understand by that, obviously, is that the father is looking for the son and waiting for the son. And again, that goes back to what I said earlier. Even if, like Abraham, you have to put Ishmael out of a house, your heart waits and prays and longs for him. So the Father who sends the shepherd and who sends the Spirit is not waiting at home inflexibly. 
And neither does he wait in vain because he hasn't sent the shepherd on a random mission that may or may not be successful. He's looking for the sinner's return. Isn't that, isn't that a wonderful thought? Is it not for yourself tonight a wonderful thought that God is looking for a sinner's return? Not only does he see him afar off because he's looking for him, but we're told that he goes out to meet him. Why? Well, his motive here is compassion. When he was still a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran. So the reason he runs out towards him is because of his compassion. Uh, it would be easy just to condemn the man for his choices in the past and the life that he's lived, and that could easily be done. But I'm sure the man's condemning himself. And the father knows what he has been through. The father knows that he must have been brought to degradation. After all, the son has reported to him that he's devoured the livelihood with harlots. However, the son got that information, I'm not sure, but the father knows that this, that this son has made a mess of his life. But he still has compassion on him. And he delights to see him coming, so he runs out towards him. And he's got a twofold intention. The first, I think, is just simply to assure him of a reception. Maybe as the son's coming home and he's within sight of the father's house, maybe he begins to wonder. And very often that happens, you see. When you're making your way towards God, you can be sure something will put you off. Satan will come in and say, but, or remember, remember how you left? Remember how you left? Can you go back there? But the flip side of that is this, that when you take steps in the right direction, God steps out to meet you. That's the flip side of that. In other words, you'll find that however tentative your steps are, you'll find that God's hand will reach right towards you. You move, he'll move. He'll move. And what you'll find is that in the preaching of the word, in the reading of scripture, in prayer, and in the fellowship of God's people, you will find the Father moving towards you. Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God. So running towards him assures him of a reception. He can see it in his Father's countenance. But he also actually wishes to welcome him. So he falls on his neck and he kisses him. And even that's not enough. We're told that he calls the servants and says, get a hold of the best robe in the house, put it on him, get a ring, put it on his hand, and put sandals on his feet, and bring the fatted calf, fattened for a special occasion, bring it here and kill it. What's all that about? What's the robe for? What's the ring for? What's the sandals for? Well, it's very straightforward, really, because you'll notice that the son doesn't finish the speech that he prepared beforehand. We all know what that's like. Uh, we prepare things. Sometimes we even prepare prayers, perhaps, to some extent that we're going to say, or things like that. And, 
uh, when the time comes, it goes on you. Doesn't quite come out the way you suggested, but it's not quite as straightforward as that here. Notice the speech that he prepared in verse 18. This is what he's going to say. This is his resolution. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, two parts, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. Second part, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Therefore, make me one of your hired servants. Well, strictly speaking, there are three parts in that. I've sinned. I'm not worthy to be called your son. Simply make me a servant. But you'll notice that when he actually speaks, he doesn't finish it. In verse 21, the son says to him, Father, I have sinned in your sight, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But then you see God cuts him off. So that the son doesn't even say, make me like one of your hired servants. No, God cuts him off. God cuts him off with the words, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Why? Well, because that's what he's just going to be made in a way that he never was before. The father says, don't say anymore. It's as though he could say, I know what you're going to ask. I know that you'd just be given a small place in my household. Forget about it. Bring out the best robe, bring out the ring, and bring out the sandals. These three things are things that slaves never possessed. They did their work barefoot. They had no ring as a sign of dignity, and they had no fine robe. They had servant's clothing. So this is simply the father's way of saying, forget asking being a hired servant in my house. When you come back home to me, I welcome you home. And you're more of a son now than you were ever before. You're not just a son by creation. You're not just a son by covenant. You are my son in spirit and in truth. And everyone begins to rejoice. Everyone, or at least everyone who really values the Father's house, and everyone who has a genuine and permanent place in it. In the spiritual realm, if you read the three parables, the people who are rejoicing are God, because that's the meaning of the Hebraic expression, a joy in the presence of the angels. That's how a pious Jew would refer to God. There is joy in the presence of the angels. There is joy in God himself. There is joy in the angelic order. Shall we not say that there is joy in the spirits of the just men and women made perfect and who have gone into glory? Is there not joy everywhere in heaven when one sinner is converted on the earth? Of course there is. It's family. It's family. It, to realize in heaven that another soul has been brought into your family, suppose a mother or a father or a grandmother or a grandfather who has long gone into glory and their grandson for whom they prayed is converted. Do you suppose that the angels know, but that they don't know? Of course they know. There is universal heavenly joy over this sinner that repents. And again, Christ is saying to the Pharisees, you may complain that the tax collectors and the sinners are coming and enjoying the gospel, but God's not complaining, and not a soul in heaven is complaining. 
And neither am I complaining, and neither should you complain. And you know, <clears throat> there is nothing, or, or there's very little, there's very little in your Christian life that quite thrills your soul like somebody just coming to God. That's what I was meaning recently when, when I was urging you and urging myself to pray for new births and how much we need new births and how much we need to see and to rejoice over sinners being converted and coming to God in new hope and new life. It's such a wonderful thing, and it's, it's like life to your own dead soul. There's nothing quite like it. And there, the parable could end, except that it doesn't. There's one person who's not happy. We'll see who he is and why he's not happy, God willing, next Lord's Day evening. Let us pray. Our gracious God, we praise you for the great work of grace by which you, by which you reach out into a far country and uh, you bring these people home. And uh, we thank you for planting that desire in their hearts, for their changed view of their father's house and their resolution to return and the strength to fulfill that resolution. And Lord, may that be lived out in the lives of some people here in our gathering and those who are joined with us online. For we long to see the salvation of souls, a new birth and a new creation where old things are passed away and everything becomes new. And age is no barrier to this change. And neither is the depth of the degradation to which any of us may have sunk. Lord, hear us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Our last uh, reading is from Metrical Psalm 119 at verse uh, 57. And the tune is Amazing Grace. Though my sure portion art alone, which I did choose, O Lord, I have resolved Here's the resolution, and said that I would keep thy holy word. With my whole heart, I did entreat thy face and favor free, according to thy gracious word. Now, this is a word that has promised mercy. Be merciful to me. And here's the reflection on a previous life. I thought upon my former ways and did my life well try. What's it worth? What does it look like? And to thy testimonies pure, my feet then turned. I notice he's choosing, he's turning. I did not stay nor linger long as those that slothful are. I mean, to linger is sometimes to be lost. But hastily, thy laws to keep, myself I did prepare. We'll hear it sung and we'll join in spirit. Oh, no. 
this blessing. <clears throat> the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.